This is Under Futures, a podcast from the team at Changist, created to delve into underexplored futures. In Amsterdam, I'm your host, Scott Smith, and joining me is science fiction writer and futurist Madeline Ashby from Toronto, Susan Cox Smith here in Amsterdam, and this episode, our special guest is writer Joanne McNeil. This episode, coming attractions, utopia and dystopia in film and TV. So for episode two, we're going to go quadraphonic um, and double the production risk along the way, uh, because what's the future with a little uncertainty, right? So to dig into the coming attractions theme, I've assembled a stellar panel. Um, We have back with us, uh, as uh, will be in most episodes, Madeline Ashby, science fiction writer and futurist. Say hello, Madeline. Hello. (laughs) It's early-ish in Toronto and late-ish in Amsterdam, so we're playing with some time differentials. Uh, We have Susan Cox-Smith, who's partner here at Just Say hello, Susan. Hello. And we are most grateful to be reaching a fourth location or a third location and be speaking with Joanne McNeil, um, writer, um, extraordinaire, critic, um, and her new book, Lurking, is coming out on uh, with MCD FSG this fall. Um, but Joanne is, among other things, among many, many other things, uh, the writer of a fantastic newsletter, All My Stars, which I will confess to be a fanboy of. And I get most of my, uh, I get most of my film and TV opinions from the three people assembled here. So no pressure. <laughs> so welcome, Joanne. Hey. Uh, where are you calling from? Um, I'm in New Hampshire. It's a long story why I'm here, but I'm in New Hampshire. <laughs> it's a long story while we're all here. <laughs> so I think we're all probably sub-zero in various formations of snow, ice, and cold precipitation. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, fantastic. Well, uh, just to get started off, I mean, we wanted to talk about, um, or you kind of use the... the um, the fact that this is award season, right? This is the the season that you get the Oscar announcements, as were earlier this week, right? The Academy Awards yes. mm-hmm. um, and uh, various other awards for film and TV come out around about this time of year. And uh, as we promised, is sort of like the, the 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 value proposition of Under Futures was we would uncork some of the conversations that we otherwise have nearly to the point of blows um, on Slack and, and in various other form, uh, forums. So uh, we wanted to kind of talk about the past year's film and TV as it relates to where we are right now in culture and in the U.S. and, and other places around uh, the future and the whole topic of it. Um, and there are programs where that's much more explicit and there are things, there are sort of themes that are that are buried in some of these other um, some of the other sort of hit shows and, and films that have been out in the last year. And there are all of these issues of optimism and pessimism tied into it. Um, this is a really kind of weird moment, and it's probably going to get weirder before this podcast recording is over <laughs> uh, in terms of today's news. Um, and then we have the whole kind of black mirror cloud hanging over us in terms of cultural reference, etc. So... Um, those are sorts of the things I wanted to get into. Um, but first, I want to go backwards a little bit. Um, Joanne, you recently wrote a great piece for Filmmaker Magazine 
uh, on the 10th anniversary of the movie Sleep Dealer, which most people might not have heard of, um, but it's really, really relevant to the politics of the moment and the kind of the vibe of the moment. And I got to the end of the piece and I really wanted to read on. Um, so we have you here to talk more about it. Um, first, I want to play a short clip from the trailer and then have you kind of talk, th talk us through your thinking. film the New York Times calls a dystopian fable disguised as science fiction adventure, exuberantly entertaining. Like Blade Runner and other big brain sci-fi flicks, it's about ideas. Eye-opening, writes Wired magazine. IndieWire says, politics with future shock, a dazzling journey. Discover the world of Sleep Dealer and plug in to a new American dream. Sleep Dealer. Now on DVD and Blu-ray. Can you take us through the logic of the piece? Sure. Um, so something to keep in mind is like when this movie came out, which was 2008, there wasn't as much fanfare around science fiction as there is today. And I was thinking about how in the past few years, there's just a lot of emotion attached to science fiction in a way that really wasn't... Um, wasn't as common before. Have you have you noticed that as well? It seems like, and it's it's not necessarily science fiction as a genre, or so much as like being able to put ourselves in uh, into the future, uh, almost to like delay our sense of the present. So um, we might talk about that a little bit later. But uh, with this film in particular, it came out in two thousand eight. It was uh, it's in Spanish. It was filmed in Mexico. Um, and I remember seeing it, I think I saw it a few months after it was released at Sundance, um, and I was just blown away. I, I remember sitting in the theater and thinking, wow, this was, this was outstanding. This is something that, this is the vision there, the, um, the ideas, the world building. I just, I, I, I'm used to a big Hollywood production having that much attention to detail. Like, you know, we know Blade Runner, Children of Men, but to see this kind of relatively small film from a unknown filmmaker, and at least to me, uh, that that was unusual. Have you seen the film? I saw it at the time, um, and I think actually not long after I showed it to a class, a class of like incoming college students who were just being introduced to futures, and it seemed it seemed a relevant topic at the time, partly because of the lo-fi and yet good quality production. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, and I also think about it, off, I, I would think about it over the years because the topic of drones was not really out in the world necessarily, at least, you know, back in 2008, 2009, it wasn't as common to discuss, but then, mm -hmm. you know, just a few years later, really like 2011, 2012 is when that, the issue of drones really took off and the way it's depicted here, the, the labor aspects idea of like stripping someone of their, of their labor and transmitting it across the border and that that exchange um it's just it's it's done very beautifully and uh and like i said like this felt like a real vision of a plausible future and i we don't get a lot of culture that is good at 
getting that that grit and that grain of detail. Um, so that's why I was really happy to when when Filmmaker Magazine reached out to me to to write something about science fiction. I, I realized it had been the it's at its 10th anniversary and that was that's that's one of those films that I do kind of put up there with Blade Runner and Children of Men just for the vision and for um for the the belie- like believable and also fantastic at the same time yeah it seemed at the time I mean as you say you know here, here we are watching um debate about um uh, you know drone funding for for uh border surveillance yeah as well as you know we've had what at least one film this year that's almost entirely focused on uh precarity and kind of precarious labor and sorry to bother you yeah yeah well sorry to bother you is definitely another one of my favorites where i feel like yes this is really capturing the energy of this moment that we're in like Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) um and and you know both of them well, I mean, they're, they're sort of taking two different looks at it and even thinking about things like Children of Men and Blade Runner, et cetera, there. And we had another Blade Runner last year. Um, and, you know, those are such high concept depictions of futures. And yet we seem to get more this year, more kind of down, you know, gritty ground level, um, not necessarily low, lower production films, but more kind of, yeah, human level uh, views of it so they weren't completely chromed over and uh, you know and made futuristic aesthetically um anybody have any yeah right Madeline? yeah well i think that i think that that's true i think that there's there's there are a couple of different common aesthetics of the future and one is that sort of you know grim and gritty influenced by cyberpunk influenced by blade runner influenced by stuff even like you know earlier even influenced by 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 earlier films uh from the 70s uh like like a boy and his dog and stuff like that you know the the sort of lived in grim very gritty very at the level of the worker at the level of the of the common man kind of kind of films and even blade runner is is like that even 2049 is like that it's it's about a guy who goes home to a terrible apartment uh where the one luxury item is his wife and and so on but there's another sort of other vision of the future which is again very chromed over and it looks sort of like the the Gernsback continuum it looks like a cover the cover of amazing stories magazine it looks like concept art it looks like the future you were promised yeah. right and i think that a lot of the angst around uh, sort of depictions of the future like Sorry to Bother You, like 2049, like Sleep Deep Dealer, like Children of Men, uh, like uh, a lot of dystopias, frankly. You know, I think that a lot of the backlash against those those stories and those depictions is is that, well, this isn't the future that I was promised. This doesn't look like the thing that you sold me. Why, why, can't, it, why can't this look like my dream? Which is basically an extension of where the hell is my jetpack, and and you know, and it's like, well, no one cares about your jetpack. You know, we have we have bigger problems now. So I think there's a there's there's a tension there that has to do with what people think is a yeah, problem. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what the last film that was like. This is this is my jetpack, and I'm wondering if it's Ready Player One because even though it was like. They're in, mm-hmm. a, they're, in a, they're in a junkyard. It's like it's a terrible place to live. But you can plug in. Like maybe that's um, they're still yeah or trying yeah. yeah 
Yeah, or something like that. Like where it's it's really, or even you know something very outlandish like like the Wachowski sisters uh, um, speed racer, right? Or something yeah. like that. It's really colorful. It's really fast. There's there there's innovation and it's good. Yeah. <laughs> Um, things, things like that. But it's it, in each of these things, and this, this, this goes to a lot of the. I know Madeline, you and I have this conversation frequently, or maybe it's just me yelling into a, a pillow, and you can barely hear me. But it's uh, th- this issue about you know, like genre and fandom. I, I can, I can hear. <laughs> there are no Clint Fandangos here. Um, uh, the you know the the issue of kind of genres and fandoms and how there there's essentially we're at a uh, particularly with production technology and the sort of profusion of people who you know who can produce these stories is an ability to create and you know produce and distribute a future that suits almost everyone's taste for what they want it to be or what they hope it's going to be or what they fear it might be mm-hmm. so we've had this mm-hmm. real kind of fractalization. Mm-hmm. Of, of yeah. public futures. Well, I think I think there's a thing, and I, I recently sort of gave a talk on this, so I've been thinking about it a lot. Um, there's definitely a thing where most dystopias look the same. They're characterized by lack, by instability, by illness, by fear, by oppression, authoritarianism. Uh, they they have the same things in common. Uh, they're dangerous. They're they're scary. They're sad. They're full of despair. They're they're characterized by by lack, by poverty, by by danger. Um, utopias look different from each other. They look separate from each other. When you ask two different people what their ideal world looks like, you get very different answers. You know, even if you try to plan a vacation with somebody, you're going to get two different Never. answers. When you talk about redesigning the world, you know, that's how you start a war. Right. But it, uh, it feels like we're kind of moving. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the whole the, like the new Twitter, the new Twitter tagline, you know, it's easier to fight than talk. <laughs> it's, um, you know, the idea is that you, it sets up this kinds of conflicts almost it's not not so much here's a future for everyone go off and enjoy yourself as much as you know we're really seeing the the and this you know this this emerged with things like gamergate and kind of messing with people's fantasy worlds um it's you know the showing up more in kind of different fandoms and now the the sort of firefights that happen around things that might otherwise be you know seem as sort of fairly innocuous entertainment um, well, I think yeah, I think our fantasies mean so much more to us now. Yeah. I think you're. I think what you fantasize about has become a source of identity. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I agree with that. I I feel like dystopias are this is the world that everyone has to live in, whereas utopias are much more about mm. this is my this is my perfect world. So they're very individualized mm. and very tailored to suit you know what's perfect for me. Yeah, it's also really vulnerable to express that desire to express desire for utopia. It's it's very revealing. It's it's almost going back to what Madeline just said. You're revealing a lot about yourself when you show what you'd like the world to be like. Yeah, it seems like the the. I mean, I think that you know the thing that kind of sparked the, the the idea for this episode was to the conversations that we have ongoing about kind of sentiment and belief that you know futures are extensions of people telling stories and 
And, you know, is there a, a almost a kind of civic duty or responsibility at this point to tell certain kinds of stories? On the one hand, you know, you're, we're just talking about everybody getting their own version, their own flavor. Um, and yet there's this tension with wanting to kind of pull everyone back together into this kind of, you know, social effort <laughs> to get us over the top the, the idea of kind of you know hopefulness and optimism you know why why are you exploring that dystopia when we should be over here projecting positive images um and that feels a bit like a tension point to me as well because it's mm -hmm. it's you know you're getting the sort of people pulling apart on one side and people kind of you know trying to, to herd the crowd back together again towards some some common views and some common aspirational points yep um but i guess the question there is like who defines who who gets to define progress who gets to define yeah. what is right. what is the kind of protopia well yeah, I mean, your, your talk a couple of years ago right. future everything i think touched on this the yeah. you know what was your sort of central quote <laughs> I think I think the central quote at that keynote was your ends on someone else's dystopia. That when we talk about optimistic visions of the future, we have to ask optimistic for whom. When we talk about a utopian future, we have to say utopian for whom. There's a really great moment in a first season episode of The Handmaid's Tale where the commander says, "We were trying to make a better world, but we didn't say better for who." Zing. And yeah, and it's, I mean, yeah. you know, you go back to the, you, you know, you go back to Margaret Atwood, the source, right? And, uh, and I think that that's, that's the question really is, is when people say, well, we want to design a better future or we want a more hopeful future or we, or we, 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 well, who's we, who is we, who gets to be included in we? Um, which is actually, ironically, the, the title of a, a great utopian uh, novel by a Russian writer who, whose name I can't remember, but We is the title of the so book. Because, <laughs> yes, uh, because who gets to be included in there? Right. I think one other element we can throw in here is that utopia is uh, for whom and also stories of people struggling are much more dramatic so I mean if we were telling sorry to bother you from the perspective of Army Hammer's character it's pretty boring he's got yes. everything he wants there is no dramatic tension like it's just it's what he gets to eat at night it's like is it going to be this bountiful meal or this other bountiful meal it's like no they don't have a lot of drama in their lives so that's part of the reason we don't see a lot of super utopian tales <laughs> yeah exactly well yeah and I've, i think i've learned not to not to try to comment <laughs> you know, oh i'm sorry i thought that was your dystopia that was actually your utopia what isn't it nice um <laughs> Uh, and now I'm looking across the room. I actually think I have a copy of Wee just sitting about ten feet from me, but it's too far to pick up and 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 leaf through right now. But um, uh, like, what other what other films were or TV shows? I mean, you mentioned Handmaid's Tale, uh, which was a kind of you know a biggie in the last year or two, um, and, and but also one that's been kind of reframed and re um, almost retoned for a, a different audience that. You know, is is a bit of a departure in some ways from the from the original source material, um, almost to the point of of kind of turning the the point of the of the story a little bit. Um, what other interesting things are, have you seen this year that that feel very much either kind of 
of the moment or problematically of the moment? Too many. Gosh, I had notes about this. (laughs) (laughs) I had notes. I had notes. Well, and I, I mean, a small comment in that is that so many people that, that I have heard from about Handmaid's Tale is that they actually don't want to watch it because their own lives are so stressed and feel so dystopian at this point that it's, it's uncomfortable to watch a show that is so dark and depressing. I can see that it's it's certainly I, I read sort of recaps of the of the second season and just found no desire to watch it um, in part because it's also departing from the novel in a huge way like the, right. the first season basically covers a lot of the events of the novel and this is really more original than than uh, than than the first season was but but also I think that we're seeing sort of this tension in terms of do you want I, th- I think more and more artists are looking at each other and sort of having this moment where you look around and and say like maybe I could be creating something that even for a few minutes makes people feel better. I mean, yesterday uh, Weezer released an album of covers, mm. and they're all just pop covers. They're all like basically insipid pop covers that are sung in a beautiful way, but there's but there's there's nothing to them. They're just enjoyable. Same day, on the same day, uh, Jeff Bridges tweeted out. That looks like it's a trailer for something related to a revival of the Big Lebowski, and both of those are nostalgia products. Right. Both of those are are about reaching back to the '90s, or to, or not even to the '90s, to an, to an earlier time. You know, before the dark times, before the Empire, as we would say in Star Wars. <laughs> but you know, the but reaching back to this to this other time, and there's a reason for that. I mean, there's a reason that the '30s were full of frothy musicals and screwball comedies, and it wasn't because everything was funny or 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 fun. There was a need for those stories, right? And it's also a matter of culture production. And the costs and, and all that. I, I've been rereading Simon Reynolds' uh, Retromania, where he talks a lot about, like, it, like the book came out almost 10 years ago, but it's, it just, it's one of those books that just grows more and more relevant. And one of the points that he makes is just, like, issues of scale. You know, if you've got, if Amazon has these warehouses that they can store every single record made by the Rolling Stones, whereas, you know, a little indie record store um, only could, you know, they're not going to have all these bag titles, they're going to recommend local artists. That's how can, how can a new artist compa- com, uh, compete with the past where you've got years and years to develop a fandom? Um, and that's why, you know, even though I wasn't necessarily taken by a lot of these new films like Bird Box or The Quiet Place, I like that these aren't attached to this gigantic empire of needing to like know uh, the backstory of every single character. Um, they were like spec scripts that happened to be picked up. Um, I'm always pleased to see that. Yeah, it's an interesting point that it's, you know, they're, they're I was thinking about it, you know, in some ways they, they are kind of old 
old school in the sense of like they're the kinds of films I could have seen being made in the 70s and you know on a slightly mm-hmm. lower budget mm-hmm. um you know if, when you had things like deliverance and and yeah you know oh, it's yeah. kind of like you know hillbilly horror type stuff sexist <laughs> chainsaw but also um the yeah they 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 feel like a kind of throwback to those kinds of um those kinds of stories i guess um yeah. well they're kind of lo-fi yeah. in that same way right they're very intimate in the same yeah way. we've been i've been thinking about them as like a new genre of sort of subaru survivalism that's yeah you know, <laughs> well I, what, what I, when i walked out of a quiet place I, I think i tweeted or i think i think i might have slacked you and said that you know a quiet place is very good it's a it's a horror movie made in a kinfolk magazine <laughs> right you st- yeah you step out of whole foods and the next thing you know you turn the corner and you're horrified <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, well, that's just looking at your review. <laughs> ah, zing. Amazon's not sponsoring us this week. Um, oh, does, I don't think they'd be sponsoring us after this episode anyway. Well, you know. Um, oh, hold that thought. Uh, but one one other thing that kind of just flashed across in front of me was the... Um, and I can't remember if you wrote about this in, in All My Stars or if you were talking about it somewhere else, Joanne, but I think First Man... Um, came up somewhere in the course of the year. And for some reason I associated with you having said something about that, but that's one that's kind of, it's not the future, but it has a really important role in the moment of how we're thinking about what's next. Yeah. I mean, that film, I, I, I was a little bit stressed out by it. I know there are so many people who loved that movie, but I, I thought a lot of the storytelling was, uh, a little bit by the book. Um, but I also felt like this, we're in this glut of space media, but there is mm-hmm. this lack of cynicism and space depictions. Like we, we don't really have, you know, you have to go back to alien to get those like mega corporations going to space. Whereas like, we're still getting these depictions of space as this beautiful future and, you know, leave this world. And, and granted first man has layers of critique in like the bureaucracy of it. It's, it's depicted as dangerous, but there is still that sense of idolism. This is a great man movie. It is a biopic of a great man. It is not a biopic of an egomaniac, which Right now, those are the people trying to get into space. <laughs> right. But do you also feel like maybe there's an inclination to to frame those movies in a way to make people feel more comfortable with the idea that your average person is never going to go to space? So we have to have, you know, important people or famous people or celebrities or, or very, very rich people who are the ones who will get to go in the next round and it's kind of a preparation to, to make sure that everyone's aspirations kind of remain in the right frame. Um, I almost wonder if it's just like they're stuck in genre conventions. Like we're stuck in we have to think of space as wonder and we have to think of it as hope and, you know, as opposed to exploitation. Like I guess the, the exception here would be the expanse which I, mm-hmm. I have yeah. not watched in full, but what I've seen is very impressive. Um, but in the film world, like in film, film still shows spaces. There, it's difficult. I mean, gravity is a 
there are risks, but you are a hero if you get off this planet. <laughs> the, yeah, somebody, somebody was already mentioning Elon Musk. It made me think about your, your piece a few years ago about the future. About uh, which you'll have to tell the story because I can't find the Vine link. I'll try to dig it up for this episode, but tell tell us about the future. Oh gosh, yeah, that was inspired by um, Kanye West in some interview. He was asked about his friendship with Elon Musk, and this was when Elon Musk wasn't going batty on Twitter. This was when we just knew him as like kind of kooky Silicon Valley guy. Um, but someone asked Kanye West about what they talk about, and, and Kanye was like, the future. And I, I'm just like, <laughs> I still can't get over it because it was just so like natural. Like, what else will we talk about? We talk about, it's not, it's like, it's not even worthy of saying future and full. It's like, it's so obviously <laughs> what we talk about. Um, and that just seemed like a great way to create a <laughs> create a circle around this certain type of way of looking at the future which feels like just not dealing with the reality on the grounds and instead having this very blustery sense of um of possibility because we're going to have all the money and, and we're going to be safe there. <laughs> yeah, I think it was, it might be Steve Fuller who, who, you know, posed the kind of framework of up, up, sort of um, upwing and downwing a few years ago, mm-hmm. you know, rather than sort of utopian and dystopian or, or right and left. I think he was really kind of going after, you know, kind of adjustments to the right left spectrum, but this idea that there are people who are kind of, you know, upwingers who, who see a much more, um, you know, progressive, positive, yeah, the future. And then there's the downwingers who, uh, who are sort of wallowing in, you know, not necessarily doomers, but yeah, it's much more of a dystopian bent uh, and things falling apart and resource constraints and now climate change and all of these sorts of issues. And that, that maybe that, that kind of framework makes more sense in, in describing what these bits of media are depicting. Um, which comes back to that issue of like, which yeah. side are you pulling on? You know, are you <laughs> are you helping us get out of the ditch, or are you just going to wallow in dystopia yeah. for a while? Well, it's also a nature of pitching too. I don't think there's a, enough like people who maybe aren't in the place of being a filmmaker who has to make a pitch, or or you know, even just you know. A conference organizer making a pitch if you pitch oh let's do this project that imagines the world in 50 years like that's an easy pitch because it's like okay we don't really have a trump we can be kind of we can have these like really kooky digital it's it's like brands love this stuff so much they eat it up so you've got a lot of these projects that are funded by or by companies and like so there's already like this like who's putting the money into it and who's perpetuating these myths um I, i feel like every day i see another project like that pop up and it's 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 hard not to get exasperated because it's who who is actually funding this stuff the storytelling well it's it's i mean it's relevant it's relevant to what we do it's relevant to the i guess in particular kind of the lens that we have on the world as a as a as a kind of group working together is that you know i think we probably tend to be realists practices um as a as a as a you know as a cluster of people and 
Um, it is. Yeah. It's like, who's going to hard work is hard Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and getting people to kind of face a near term, you know, hard, um, slog through dealing with some real challenges that we face right here, right now, um, is difficult to do. And it's easier if you can jump over that kind of magic zone to, you know, think more freely and openly and not have to kind of be tied down by the, the, um, the, the difficulties of the moment. I think um, uh, just yesterday, an app Jane from Superflux, you know, mm. posted a fabulous piece on Medium that kind of articulates that. Yeah, it's easy to be to, to sort of be fantastical. It's hard to be to do the hard work um, and to think about the kind of near term issues. And it feels like that, you know, bits of that are coming up in some of these pieces of film and TV, but it's, yeah. they aren't things that we would necessarily recognize as futuristic or is talking explicitly sorry go ahead oh something that i keep thinking about is like if you are a true cassandra you are stigmatized you're like if you're a true cassandra you are not welcome in the room so it's true true you have it's true um, we know yeah yeah you you all people (laughs) understand this so it's like you have to either modify your predictions in a way that like people can be in a position to hear them or you will be like you'll end up like Cassandra it's just this is these are the things that I I, lately I've just been going like I can't get over how many people are being told the first person to see this coming and like no they were not they're the (laughs) first people who managed to build an identity around predicting this like let's be real (laughs) or they're the first they're the often what that is shorthand for is this is the first person I've listened to yes this is the person with the Mm. PhD who said it yeah this is the person with the with the cultural capital that I respect who told me this as opposed to people on the margins who notice things first yeah as we know like trends come from the margins they you know signals come from the margins we see those things come in from the people who have less capital yeah. in all meanings of the term Con- and context is and, everything and mm-hmm. and so would you do those people get listened to no except for by the people who are listening for signals. Yes, that's exactly. And what and so there's there's there is something to that, you know, like the um, I think that there is there is a Cassandra problem, but there's also there's a I think that in businesses and in organizations there's we were talking about the vulnerability of talking about your preferred outcome, the the vulnerability required to discuss your ideal, you know, to express desire, to express want is is big but it's also it also requires a great deal of vulnerability to be the one on the team who says what if we fail right or who says not let's jump in the ditch but hey there's a ditch over there yeah and 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 there are organizations you know at all levels it could be your family it could be it could be your company it could be the group you volunteer with whatever that will that will penalize you for noticing the ditch yeah it's all about the framing. Well, yep. and we, I mean, we've yep. even had clients show up with literal movie quality videos of the future of their organization. And then their question back to us is, so how do we do this? And it's like, yeah, you can't CGI your way into the, your preferred <laughs> future. And so it's often that difficult conversation of saying, well, there are uncertainties and you're going to have to for you know to use Madeline's term see the see the ditches that potentially can you know cause problems down the road 
Well, and recognize them to be critical enough that it's constructive um, and that you can actually kind of get somewhere with it. But the, I, I don't want to let this topic go without kind of touching on something that that is um, made us all jump recently, I think, and that's the the sort of the the the, the ex punks, but in particular the hope punk element that's uh, that's kind of emerged, you know, rhetorically, um, if not in other ways, of this idea of yeah, you know, kind of an entire genre around hopefulness. That's we could call that a utopia, but I, you know, I think they're well. What are your thoughts on it? I think it's passive aggressive punk. Mm. <laughs> well, it just feels like uh, hope to be hopeful there that means action sometimes that's destructive sometimes that's combative like um to actually put yourself on the line to build a better world um it's it's not uh, as simple as just believing in yourself or uh believing in the good of mankind uh it's sometimes it's not easy to to do this and i i I felt like when i saw that article i just it just seemed to link back to this kind of collectimal comic-con style of a fandom that you have to like keep buying things to be a part of something and i i didn't really it, it, it didn't feel like an actual movement. Fair. Um, Madeline? Well, I think one of the things that has been the most, one of the things I've noticed and one of the things that have been most interesting to me about the 21st century so far has been the, the re-examination of human feeling and sentiment. Because the the people, the generation of, of people who are interested in Hope Punk, which I would say like probably my age and younger, and especially uh, people who are my students' age. So I teach at OCAD University and I, and, and I teach design students who are in undergrad right now. Um, and so one of the things I think that is that is interesting to me is that they have grown up, as I have, with a different understanding of what feelings are and therefore what hope is, what the emotional labor of hope is. When I hear something about hope punk, and I actually got listed as a hope punk author recently, like someone tweeted out my name awesome. with a hashtag hope punk, and I was like, really? Can you I, take I, legal I, steps? I, 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 no, I, I took it as a compliment in that, like, oh, I made you feel something. That's nice. Yeah. But the, um, but I, you know, and I, far be it for, you know, it's in the eye of the beholder. Far be it for me, the author, to tell you what I'm actually doing. That's, you know, uh, I, I'm dead acor- according to Roland Barthes. So it doesn't matter. But the um, the idea that, you know, there there is um, that the author is somehow or the creator or the filmmaker or whatever, the showrunner, who knows what, is somehow responsible for the audience's well-being, good or bad. And I and I reject that notion in a lot of ways. We are there to make you feel something, and we might design that experience for you. But the idea that you entrust us with your emotional well-being, that gets dangerous for me, because that's a huge amount of emotional labor on the part of the creator. Uh, one of the things that – but what I think has also changed over time is that, you know, in the West – in, and in Global North or, or what have you, we now have a language around feelings that has that is a direct out a direct outflow or a direct consequence of a us medicating children from a very early age, 
and getting them to talk about their feelings and getting them to, to sort of discuss their feelings in a very medicalized way. Um, and, and B, asking, asking children, asking people to sort of talk about their feelings, you know, as a means of preventing violence. So, you know, since uh, the Columbine shooting, there's been a massive effort in a lot of schools, in a lot of different countries, to sort of talk about bullying, to talk about emotional abuse, to talk about, uh, to talk about violence and talk about personal, interpersonal violence and, and so on and how you feel. It's not an accident, then, that 20 years later, you would get a generation of people who talk about their feelings more, who talk about self-care, who talk about self-expression, who talk about softness and, and, and their ability to relate to each other and emotional abuse and emotional labor. Those and are I, natural consequences. And I think this, these, this ties back to that issue of, of having many, many depicted futures, which mm-hmm. have a kind of emotional, the emotions are sort of laminated into them for a lot of people. Yes. Um, yeah. Which makes them much more um, delicate, not, not the people, but the topics much more kind of loaded uh, mm-hmm. and fraught yeah. to, to deal with or to try to, to critique in a way that, you know, from a, from a common cultural perspective. Uh, and this kind of brings me around to um, the uh, article that we all, I think, read recently in Brightwall Dark Room um, that talked about um, a particular person who has to do their perfect egg bite every morning because otherwise their whole day would be ruined, that they had this incredible investment in the perfection of this event every single day in their life. And I feel like so much of that is brought into everyone's lives now, our responsibility to make sure that every day is is not... Um, what's the word I'm looking for, like jinxed by not mm-hmm. doing the right thing at the right time or, you know, having to, to get through the day by doing every, all the right strep, steps. And it's not really OCD, like full blown. It's just like one little thing that always has to be perfect. And that was one of my observations about both Bird Box and um, A Quiet Place was that in these horrible, horrible situations, if you did one thing just right every single day, you would survive. So right. you, you didn't have to go to work and you didn't have to, you know, grow your own food or, you know, which they did to a little, it was on the fringes, but you could be quiet and you could cover your up and you would be okay in this world. And I, I find that really interesting, you know, contrasted against the sort of more broadly, you know, we all have to work together to to be hopeful and resist and change the world. Um, some of these movies now that we're seeing bring in like this very, very tight, strict way of here's how you're successful. And this, I mean, this is directly relevant to, to the environments that we work in um, yes. uh, in that you have and I think it's probably stronger in the U.S. than some other parts of the world. But the um, the defense of the official future and mm-hmm. the, the guardrails that are placed around it. And when I say official future, I mean the, the you know a sort of top down depiction, whether it's a corporation, organization, you know, a, a cultural group, whatever it's going to be. The um, the 
you know, by laying out, look, this is the this is the future we believe in. This is this is our product roadmap or our, um, you know, the, the the world where we win or the world where our our customer is king or queen, whatever it's going to be. Um, the dangers around the outer edges of that of of deconstructing that from a from an organizational point of view is quite scary because you're asking you're asking organizations to let go of a singular belief and yet that singular belief kind of operates whether or not the world is changing around it and then you know the idea that well actually you can make some mistakes you 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 know to to survive in this process you need to experiment you need to to um, to be comfortable with ambiguity and uncertainty, not try to kind of constrain everything back into a, in, you know, stuff it all back in the future <laughs> to get <Yeah>. it back, <laughs> you know, to get it back into the silver rocket um, so everyone can blast off together. And I think, I guess that's why this topic is is interesting to me and I think to, to, to all of us in the sense that it's it's the distance between what people are consuming in popular culture as depictions of the future and the framings of that and the kind of mm. rules around that and how you construct new futures is collapsed <laughs> almost entirely. So there's kind of a singularity there of, of how you deal with individuals or groups or organizations and then how you deal with the culture outside their doors that they're bringing in with them. Um, that kind of tight, you know, defense and adherence of, of particular futures to the exclusion of all others yeah. makes it harder to, to kind of mix and match and cut, you know, inter, interleave them in, in useful ways. I mean, and to get back to what Susan just said about a quiet place and bird box. I, I do think it's, it, it does reveal something about this longing for that one solution that if you look hard enough, you'll find a skeleton key. And I think there is a lot of that in the air in politics in terms of like resistance, Twitter, that sense of like, you know, if we impeach Trump, we're going to go back to the way things were, but okay. Yeah, you do that. And <laughs> It's not like the. It's not like climate change isn't happening. It's not like people aren't still in poverty. It's. It's not like there aren't like many many layers of chaos, um, and that. Yeah. So there's so not one like, good trick. Yeah. 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 And, there isn't a silver where, bullet. And where where what I don't see a lot of is the sense of collaboration, the sense of uh, coming together. And I, I've the two films that I keep talking about, especially. It, among like people in interest in science fiction because I feel like these films are not science fiction but I think they reveal a lot of what dystopian utopian what science fictional stories should reveal and that's leave no trace and shoplifters because I felt like both mm. films um, are about people doing their best like that it's outside of what is considered institutions. And I think Leave No Trace is probably the one that most people have seen. It's on it's streaming on Amazon Prime. Uh, and you have just... Every, there, everybody in that film has a moral compass that you can recognize. And there isn't necessarily a villain. The villain is maybe some trauma that is impacting the father but it is about that sense of like how do we make room for people how do people get by when they're actually not when they're when how do people get by when they're they're not welcome into institutions where they don't feel welcome into society and that 
that sense of collaboration, community, and, and making space for people. That's what that's what I really want to see, and that's what the Hopunk sort the Hopunk Vox piece really didn't get get into that so much, which I, which is why it felt a little bit silly. So just as a kind of last point, you mentioned again a platform there, and I think you you kind of pointed towards this at the very beginning. To what extent do do we think the the platforms themselves, in particular, now we have this kind of like tight algorithmic feedback loop of you know since what people watch you know look at the sentiment analysis of what they're talking about quickly make a slight variation on that and pump it back out um to what extent do we think the kind of the 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 capabilities of platforms like amazon and netflix and hulu etc and the tight feedback loop with the viewer is distorting or not <laughs> kind of i how- don't I don't really trust any of that data science right now because when I Netflix has like 15 years of my data and still thinks I want to see like some random Adam Sandler movie and it's like I will watch yeah. like some random some seriously random French movie three times in a row and it just like it's not and it's not saying that it never will but like when we see a lot of these stories about Netflix predi- like predicting user behavior it's you know that that's just oh we've also had all these studies over times ways to like people are always trying to make subjective things seem uh factual and it might have been you know in the 80s it might have been a studio that says well we did this focus group and everybody says you have to give this a happy ending it's like we're there that's just the nature of like creating through studios with massive teams that are involved in the production of a film. So I, I don't, I, I, when I, I'm still really skeptical of these claims that uh, we're going to see our culture impacted on that level of the data science. Makes sense. Um, so we're just about at time, um, but last thought, actually, can you tell us anything about lurking? Oh yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> Uh, well, it's, gosh, maybe I can't. It's one of those things, like, I've been working on this book for so long. Um, it's kind of, it's kind of a lot of things. It starts, like, it's a little bit of a history of the web. It's a little bit of a history of, like, how, why people still use the internet, even though it's frustrating, and why it's not always frustrating, and it's, it's, um, it's yeah it's coming out this fall (laughs) i hope people read it (laughs) well let us know when it's out or i'm sure we'll 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 see you coming and uh the futurist um and uh we'll we'll be sure to point listeners at it but um i i will call the time whistle here and and thank you very much um joanne for connecting to us from from uh, new hampshire um, Madeline, good to have you here again from Toronto. And in Amsterdam, Susan and I will silently wave goodbye to the microphone. <laughs> and um, we will uh, see you next episode. Thanks very much. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye. This has been an episode of Under Futures, made by Changist. We welcome your comments and ideas. If you're using the Anchor app on Android or iOS, you can leave us a voice comment. Just tap the message icon beside this episode. Subscribe to Under Futures on Anchor, SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or other podcast platform. 
let us know what you think on Twitter at underfutures, all one word. See you next time.